Here is the word of God, which is eternally true. I'm reading from Matthew 12, verses 38 to 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, him being Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in there and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are, and the Presbyterian pastors, the Baptist pastors, the conservative evangelical Bible-believing men are coming up to Jesus, and they hate him because he's putting the torch to all their work of security and professionalism, right? And so they say to him, teacher, we want a sign from you. Now, how does Jesus respond? Well, if you take what everybody today claims to think about Jesus, what you would expect Jesus to do is to say, well, what kind of sign would you like? Would you like a sign of nature? Would you like a sign of spiritualism? Would you like a sign of health? Would you like a sign of... Food, would you like a sign of money? What kind of sign would you like? Now, as I said each one of those things, and you're sitting there thinking, and you know the Gospels, you know the historical, accurate, perfectly accurate accounts of Jesus' life, you know that as I ticked off those things, Jesus had done all those things. He even gotten a, a coin out of the mouth of the fish, right? You know that he stilled the waters in the sea, the perfect storm instantly was calmed, right? You know that he made the blind walk or see, he made the lame walk. You know that when it came to food, he fed the 5,000, right? So exactly what kind of sign did they want? They were craving a sign. What sign? Or let me put it this way, what sign would be required for you to humble yourself before God and confess your sin 
and, and make an unconditional surrender to him and have faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What sign would do it for you? What would be a sign worthy enough of your American United States eminence? How could God convince you? How could God convince me? Well, the storm won't do it. The blind seeing won't do it. The deaf hearing won't do it. And Jesus sees them, and he knows what? He knows nothing will do it. Right? Nothing's going to do it. As I was thinking about this uh, account, I thought of the story that Jesus told. And don't call it a parable, because Calvin doesn't think it's a parable. Calvin thinks it's actually a story. In other words, a real thing that really happened that Jesus knew about and told us. And you remember, it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So you got a poor man outside of a rich man's campus property, outside of Netherland where Michael Jackson lived, right? He's out at the gate. The gate can't, he can't get it. He just wishes he could have whatever food gets given to the dog after the meal is over, right? And then they die, Jesus says, and the rich man goes to hell and the poor man goes to heaven. And the thing I love about this story is that Jesus doesn't even bother naming the rich man. Because what? Well, because all rich men are the same. There's absolutely nothing interesting about them. If you really want something interesting, find a poor man. (laughs) And so Jesus says that The rich man goes to hell, the poor man goes to heaven, and in hell, the rich man is unbearably hot and thirsty. And being a rich man, he knows the purpose of poor men. And the purpose of poor men is to do the will of rich men. And so he has the audacity of asking God to send the poor man to hell to take the edge off of his thirst. But the response comes that there can't be any crossing after death from heaven to hell or hell to heaven. And so seeing that his dilemma is eternal and he will never have his thirst quenched, the horror of his situation, of his brothers who are still living, they're still on the other side of death, hits him and he says, send somebody to warn my brothers. And then the answer comes back, his thirst can't be quenched and nobody can go back to warn his brothers. And why? Well, because what? Because they have what? They have the Bible. And the way the Bible's spoken of in this account that Jesus gives us is that they have Moses and the prophets. And that's a way that you speak of they have the written word of God, right? They have the word. And then he says this, he says, no, but if someone returns from the dead, 
then they'll believe. And the answer comes now. What? If they did not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. And so the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, show us a sign. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation. You see, this is not the Jesus you've ever heard about anywhere in your life. It's not the Jesus of Christian radio stations. It's not the Jesus of upbeat Christians sharing the gospel who don't call you to see your sin and repent and believe. It's not the Jesus where people go around talking about how God is love. And of course God is love, but you know that when we say God is love, and we don't qualify it with any statement about God's wrath against ungodliness. We're lying, right? You know that. To tell this world, which is completely without compunction of conscience, completely devoid of conviction of sin and of self-knowledge, no awareness of the darkness of their hearts, of the fact that they're in bondage to demons, and that that is the steady state economy of everyone outside of Christ. If you take somebody whose life this text shows us is demonically oppressed every single day, even the dreams at night, do you understand that's what Jesus is saying about those who are not believers? You understand that? There's only two conditions. One is liberated through Christ, and the other is in bondage to demons and evil spirits. There is no other condition. You understand this. See, you're sitting there and you're looking at me and you're going, well, wait, wait, I've never thought of it that way. God loves everybody all the time. And I say, yes, and he sent his son to tell you the condition of those who are not in Christ. And that's their condition. They're in bondage to demons. They dwell within them. There's nothing Satan wants other than to possess the souls of those who are made in the image of God. And when he's kicked out of those souls, he can't stand it. Because there's no water, there's only heat, and he loves to possess the souls of those who bear the image of God. And so he casts about until he can come back and possess the soul of someone made in the image of God. Do you understand? There are only two situations. One is you're a slave of Satan, and the other is you're a slave of God. You know, don't soften it up with talk of servanthood. You know, this isn't like a butler in a country estate in a Jane Austen novel who's superior to his aristocrat boss. Jeeves. No, no, no. Slave of Satan. Slave of God. Okay? And 
And so that's what Jesus starts by saying. Look at what the text says. Jesus said to them, and evil and adulterous generation. Now, you know what evil is? I just explained it to you. What is adulterous? Well, you would think that adulterous means somebody whose eyes are always undressing other people. Or someone who is in an affair, all right? That's not what it means here. Adulterous generation is Jesus acknowledging that these Baptist and Presbyterian evangelical pastors who are trying to kill him, all right, have the patrimony, have the inheritance of the true covenant of Israel. They are the legitimate descendants of Abraham. In other words, they are the people of God. And so when there's conflict, they say, well, we're children of Abraham. Well, we have Moses. We have, we have the, the, the law and the prophets. We have, we have everything that God has given us. And Jesus says, no, you're a wicked and adulterous generation. And adulterous because although they are the people of God, they are not the people of God. They have uncircumcised hearts. They don't live by faith. They will not repent. And so, although they carry the name of Tim Bailey, they're the children of John Smith. And they've wormed their way into Tim Bailey's home, you understand. You wicked and adulterous generation. All right? Now you understand why we don't go around and say, Jesus loves everybody. Because how could anybody who's heard Christians say that ever understand Jesus responding this way? Right? You understand this. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Now, you remember who Jonah is? Jonah was the man who was sent to Nineveh and refused to go. And we find out later he did not want Nineveh to repent. It would be kind of like sending, uh, it would be kind of like sending a Jew to the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so Jonah ran, and God was the hound of heaven that went after him. And eventually, Jonah was thrown into the water and then was swallowed by a great fish, a whale. And he was in the belly of the whale for three days. And Jesus, and then you remember what happened, the, the, the whale vomited him up. And then, <laughs> he resembles me, then he... He got it. <laughs> and he went to Nineveh and he preached and called them to repent and said, God, this loving God, God would, would consume them with his wrath if they didn't repent. And so guess what Nineveh did? Nineveh repented. Right? And so Jesus said, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, what? The what? The prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then, in case they hadn't gotten it, 
You know what he's saying. He's saying that the sign you're going to get, remember how he said, no, if you send somebody back from the dead, they'll believe. And he said, no, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. So they say, give us a sign. Jesus says, you'll get the sign of Jonah, right? So the sign of Jonah is that Jesus is going to go into the grave for three days and then he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's not going to be the Jesus of evangelicalism today. He's going to be a prophet. And he's going to call you to repent. And then Jesus, in case they didn't get it, made it more clear. Now, you have to understand what it is to be a Sabbath goyim. My dad grew up in New York, and in New York, there are Orthodox Jews. And the Orthodox Jews will hire scum to do their dirty work on the Sabbath. You know, they can't light a fire, they can't push an elevator button, they can't do all this stuff because they're the holy people set apart to God. And so they hire people that there's no hope for them anyhow. They're Gentiles. They're they're scum. And they pay them to be scum, you know? They don't know what the Lord's, they don't know what the Sabbath is. They don't know what it is to obey the Sabbath commandments, and so they pay them money, and they come in, and they cook, they light the fires, they turn up the thermostat, they push the elevator button, they do everything that Jews aren't allowed to do because Jews are holy to God. And the term that's used to refer to them is Sabbath goyim. All right, and that's not a nice expression. Right, Bob? Bob says right. Right? Okay, he's our resident Jew, so I have to appeal to him occasionally. Now, Nineveh was goy, it was goyim, it was slime, it was scum. It was not the people of God. And Jesus goes on and says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. And what he's referring to is the people in front of him, God's people. He says, the men of Nineveh, so the Sabbath going, the, the, the scum will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And who's the something greater? It's Jesus. He says, you, you will be condemned by PCUSA woman pastors who believed. You will be condemned by the mayor of the Castro district in San Francisco. You will be condemned by Barack Obama. You will be condemned by Vladimir Putin. I don't know who you despise. Michael Jackson will condemn you. Robert Mugabe. You see, what he's doing is he's taking the most awful, wicked, not of God thing, and he's holding them up as an example to the Jews and saying, they will be in the kingdom of heaven, and they will condemn you because you won't believe. 
And then he goes on, and he says, the queen of the south. So this is the one who came to Solomon for his wisdom. She was a queen down probably in Ethiopia. She had the wealth of the world, and she came up to hear the word of the Lord from Solomon. And he says, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation. So again, it's the people of God right in front of him. And he says, this person from Ethiopia will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You see what's going on here? If you go to the chapters prior to this and you read Matthew's account of what happened, you'll find that there's just all kinds of signs given. There's teaching, and that's a sign. There are uh, the cleansing of the leper. In chapter 8, there's the centurion's faith. Jesus casts out demons, beginning with verse 28 of 8. Chapter 9, a paralytic is healed. (laughs) Chapter 9, beginning with verse 9, a very wealthy tax collector is called and gets up immediately and goes with Jesus. I mean, that's a sign. More miracles of healing. You know, you have signs all over your life. I mean, there are signs in my life and your life all the time. There's the sign of the rain falling on the just and the unjust. And if that doesn't show us the love of God, what does? The fact that we still have rain in the United States of America is amazing. There's the thunder that reminds us that God is holy and that he will consume the wicked. What do you think thunder's about? Why prior to his faith did Jonathan Edwards get terrified at thunder, but after he made his peace with the sovereignty of God, in other words, after he came to true faith, the thunder and the lightning became a comfort to him. And then I understood their feet are on slippery places. And you say, well, okay, nature, all nature sings and around, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I say, okay, how about specific words from God to you personally? You know that you've had those dreams. You know that God has sent men and women into your life who have told you to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. For some of you, it's your father and your mother. And for others, it's these angels that come out of nowhere in your life. People. We have signs, don't we? God speaks specifically to us, doesn't he? It is amazing how God speaks to us. Could you give him a mic, please? Or does this one work? I tried to do this myself in the first service, but... See if it's on, please. Yeah. Tim had asked me this morning uh, to share with you uh, a sign that God has given us um, in the past. Um, we're not 
right up craving. Uh, we're not craving signs, um, but God does uh, does work in amazing ways. And one way that God worked in Lisa and I while we were in New England was we had decided that we were done having kids after we had two boys. We said because we can provide so much more, yada yada. We were done having kids and. Um, the one thing that began to help Lisa and I think about why we were done was uh, God put a little girl in my arms at childcare, and I thought to myself, boy, would it be neat to have a little girl um, because I had two boys. And that was where it began, but then um, our, our second son has autism, and at the time he only said two words, mama and dada, and he was two and a half. And I was sitting at my computer, and he came up to us, or came up to me, and got my attention. I looked over at him, and he was learning sign language through baby Einstein. And of course, baby Einstein doesn't put all of these signs together, but he sure did. He said, I, mama, dada, more babies. And all I did was I turned away from him and looked back at the computer screen. <laughs> no way, you know. And then about 45 minutes later, uh, he did it again. And then he did it for three or four months every single day. <clears throat> so even, uh, even without words, um, God gives signs. And, and really it was that um, that started to help Lisa and I started thinking about why we were justifying, why we were done having kids, which was foolishness. Um, a, little, a little after when Lisa and I started trying, um, Lisa was at a play day with her friend, and the kids were playing, and out of the blue, Nathan came up. Nathan, uh, our second son with autism, came up to Lisa, lifted up her shirt, and put his hand on her belly and said, Baby. And this was weird. I was asked to censor what Lisa said, since we're from Pittsburgh. But she said, uh, she looked at her friend and said, I will be amazed, quote unquote, uh, if we're pregnant. And indeed we were. And um, uh, God has given Nathan an amazing gift. And it's not the gift of just going around and telling these sorts of things. Um, this is just one way that God got our attention. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, hallelujah. You see, God speaks to you all the time. God speaks to you. God has given you every sign you need. God spoke through Nathan. God spoke through Balaam's donkey. And so what is it? What is it? Well, the reason they asked for signs was that they did not want to believe and they wanted to be able to accuse God of not rising to the level of sufficient information that they required. Do you understand this? The whole, the whole thing was about them having justification for not repenting. And so, give us a sign. You know, but it's like some of the husbands that you women are married to. You try to please them. 
It's impossible. The more you try to please them, the more discontented they become. And that's the way it was with the Pharisees. The more Jesus did signs and the more he taught them and the more he rebuked them, the harder their hearts got. And so Jesus says, hey, listen, you're, you're an evil group of people and you're, you're the product of adultery. You don't know a thing about Abraham or Moses because Abraham obeyed God. And you know something? The Ninevites are going to condemn you at the day of judgment. You know something? The queen of Sheba who came across the earth to find what you properly inherit, she's going to condemn you. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. When I'm going to rise from the dead and I will return to you and I will return a prophet. And you go through the book of Acts and you know that it's fulfilled because all through the book of Acts, what is the summary of the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts? It is repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. Jesus came back as a prophet. But you know, Jesus is so loving. Are you with me? He's so loving all the time that he still doesn't think that he's made the point. And so he thinks he'll embellish the love that he's showing them just a little bit more. And this is what he says next. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. And then it goes, and this is what New Year's resolutions are. This is this orgy of sweeping. And it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Had God swept? Had there been a certain understanding of the things of God? Did those rabbis rabbis sit in the seat of Moses? Were the people of God to obey them? Yes, Jesus said, they sit in the seat. You must obey them. They had seven demons. Now, we're we're out of time. And I want to bring the, the the end of this account from Jesus to bear on us. The end of it is that many commentators on this, many Bible students will tell you that Jesus is making a distinction between those who are truly born again and those who hear the gospel but don't believe, all right? And so what I can do right now is just say to you that because you're here this morning, now I'm not saying this, but try it on, see if it fits, that I can say to all of you who are here today, isn't it good that you believe And that you're not in danger of any demons possessing you. 
But what a terrible condition of your relatives and your neighbors and your friends and the people you work with. Because they haven't believed. They maybe have heard a Billy Graham sermon. They've maybe read the four spiritual laws. They maybe even have membership of a church. But there isn't living faith in them. And so you sit, you listen to me and you think, yeah, I'm sure glad I'm in a church that really believes. Because all of us here have no demons. We wouldn't allow demons. If there were demons in a man, the elders would pray for him. I mean, you can't believe in the sovereignty of God and have demons inside of you, surely. Or the sovereignty of God and pedo baptism. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, we have all these different schemes by which we can avoid fearing that the application of this warning is to me. You see, we're just like the Pharisees. Do you think they were in fear of God when he was done saying these things? No, they just were going to kill him. They just going to kill him. I mean, you know, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> you know, they knew what to do with this dude upsetting all of their perfect schemes, you know. The world can be separated into Ninevites and Sheba and them. You know, the, the PCUSA and the PCA. You know, the, the people that don't believe in inerrancy and the people that do. The, the people that don't baptize babies, the people that do. The people that baptize babies. And the people that don't. You see, all these schemes we have. So here's the truth. The truth is, this story is not given for you to make a more sophisticated judgment about who is and isn't saved. That's what everybody says. But I stand with John Calvin. John Calvin says that this story is to tell us who believe to not be slothful. You know, to stir up our faith, to plead with the Holy Spirit, to dwell in our hearts so that seven demons won't come in. And you say, well, that's impossible. If you prayed the sinner prayer, it's done. And I say, you see, that's the problem with the sinner's prayer. Because everybody thinks it's done. Pray the sinner's prayer, you're done. Just pray the sinner's prayer. And then I can just, without any question, tell you that you've been transferred from death to life and you're on your way to heaven and we're seated in the heavenlies and to those people, Jesus says, that the demon came back with seven others. Do you see? Listen to Calvin. Calvin says this. He says... He points out, speaking of Jesus, he points out in a general manner the condemnation that awaits those who, despising the grace offered to them, again open the door to the devil. So you say, well, God has offered me grace, and I say, yes, don't open the door to the devil again. Don't open the door to the devil again. You know, I watch you as I preach on manhood and womanhood, and I watch you parsing your faith. 
I watch you. What do you think a shepherd does? <laughs> I'd have to be an idiot not to watch you. And boy, there's no scriptural doctrine today that tests the hearts of men like sexuality. And some of you, you, you're just committed to obedience. And some of you are like, is he going to make me, is he going, well, he blah, 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 blah. And I say, hey, I'm not going to do anything. I long ago gave up any hope of getting you to do anything. I don't think it depends on how sophisticated I am and my preaching. I don't think it depends on me having the vocabulary that will stroke the egos of IU people. I don't think it depends on whether I brew beer, whether I have women serving communion. I don't think it depends upon whether or not I use an iPhone or a Mac. As Dylan said, I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now, which I think is the perfect description of sanctification. How old unbelief is. And unbelief is where the Spirit of God is not the one possessing your heart. And it's a filthy place. You know why the demons are so excited about coming back and finding the house clean? Because they specialize in making it rotten and regurgitous. They love to filth up the heart of a man made in the image of God. Calvin says this. In every case in which Christ operates on men. Are you under operation right now? In every case where Christ operates on men. By the way, when scripture uses the word men, it's not saying male. It's saying human beings. They're always named men in scripture. So if you're a woman, this is you, men. Okay, Adam is a man. Eve is a man. For in every case in which Christ operates on men, or is, is Christ operating on you right now, the devils are drawn into a contest with him and seek beneath his power. And then he says, when he, meaning Satan, has been driven out, the demons have been driven out, he conceives resentment at having lost his prey, collects new forces, and arouses all his senses to attack us anew. You've been through this, where you have been brought to repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit has indwelt your heart, and then you have temptations to do things that make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Sins that were repented of, a score, come back in vengeance, and it's unbelievable. And you think, I had hope of the Holy Spirit possessing me. And now look at where I am. What's going on? Calvin says, he conceives resentment, Satan, and having lost his prey, collects new forces and arouses all his senses to attack us anew. 
To dwell outside of men is to Satan a wretched banishment and resembles a barren wilderness. And then he says this, he says, Let us therefore learn that as soon as Christ calls us, a sharper and fiercer contest is prepared for us. Right? Right? Is this not true? Is it not true that when I preach to you about manhood and womanhood and your heart begins to acknowledge that you have always thought that's the way it was because the testimony of the creation order was put in you and the bastards could not destroy it. And you hear it preached and you go, yes, that is what I want. And immediately, the forces of hell come against you. Your parents, your pastors, your professors, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, everything is going to take you captive. It's not going to take you captive about hypothetical constructs. (laughs) Do you understand this? It's always particularities that are at stake when it comes to obedience. And Calvin is speaking to Christians, and he says, let us, therefore, learn that as soon as Christ calls us, a sharper and fiercer contest is is prepared for us. Now listen to this. Satan views with deeper hatred and attacks with greater fierceness and rage those who have been rescued from his snares. If the doctrine of eternal security has caused you to be able to read this account and think it doesn't apply to you, you haven't believed the doctrine of eternal security. Because nowhere does it ever taught in Scripture that when you pray a sinner's prayer, you go forward at a Billy Graham meeting, you're voted yes by the elders of this church or by the elders of your church. Nowhere does it teach that you're saved. What it teaches is that you are being saved. And only those who persevere to the end will be saved. And so Jesus tells this story about the demons. Calvin says, by these words, now listen carefully to this, by these words Christ shows that if we fall from his grace, do you hear that? If we fall from his grace, our subjection to Satan is doubled so that he treats us with greater cruelty than before and that this is the just punishment of our slothfulness. Let us then not suppose that the devil has been vanquished by a single combat because he has once gone out of us. Let us remember that as his lodgment, his dwelling within us, 
was of old standing ever since we were born, I would say ever since our moment of conception. He has knowledge and experience of all the approaches by which he may reach us. Now, what is the point of this? Well, the point of this is for you to tremble. Our God is a consuming fire. And our God will not accept into his kingdom of heaven a soul that's possessed by seven demons, right? We get this, right? But what do you do? Do you get busier with the broom? Do you buy, use the broom and a swisher? You know, and a vacuum? And then use a little bit of wax? No. The point of it is that you tremble before God. You realize that Satan is a roaming lion. Roaring. Looking for someone that he may seek and devour. And so you go through life trembling. Right? You don't go through life being a CCM, angst-ridden, weak, copping posture of limp-wristed kind of half-man, half-woman, singing of your alienation from human existence, but Jesus loves me. There's just nobody in Scripture that the hand of God is on that ever looks like that. They're consumed in the battle. What do you think it means when it says that violent men are the ones that get into the kingdom of God. You think it, the word men there doesn't mean men? You think the word violent doesn't mean violent? Why would you listen to Christian music that is antithetical to violent men seizing the kingdom of God? Because it makes you feel better about how slothful you are, that's why. <laughs> Listen, I just noticed for the first time in my life that Jesus actually says in the book of Mark, elders, is that where I was reading from? Thank you. That he says, what, what, what was it? Yeah, Jesus actually gives a command, be careful what you listen to. You can't listen to almost any contemporary Christian music today and see this text for what it is. Do you understand that? They're completely opposed to each other. You know, are you with me? What you need to do is you need to be careful what you listen to. And you need to listen to this warning from the mouth of Jesus Christ given to the people of God, the conservative people of God, the evangelical Bible-believing people. No, no, no. To their pastors and their elders. And he says to them that they're an evil and adulterous generation. And he says to them that the queen of Sheba and the Ninevites will condemn them at the day of judgment. And then he says to them what? He says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And then he says that if you clean your house out, that Satan will be furious and he will redouble his efforts and you will have seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty legions of demons possessing you. And so what do you do? 
Well, come on. The first thing you do is you take warning, right? Right? You take warning. You think, oh, I was wondering what's going on. I've been reading all these blog posts about how to fulfill my New Year's resolutions, but they're already gone. I'm already 11 chapters behind in my Bible reading. Right? Now, now you go and you fall on your knees before the living God and you say, send the Spirit of God to clean my house. It's already dirty again. And then he will do what? The Spirit of God will come into your heart and he will clean it out again. And then the demons will come back and then you fall on your knees and plead with him to clean your heart again, and then the demons come back, and then you fall. And this is sanctification. And the process of sanctification is that you were so much older than, but you're younger than that now. And as your body wastes away, and you get wrinkles, and you get ugly, and you get fat, and then there are no more children in your house, and then you, your eyes don't see, and your ears don't, and, and life gets quiet inside You're vivified. And people that look at you, they see the power of God in your life. They see that even though your face is more and more wrinkled every day, that it's happier every day. And they know that the demons are being killed by the Spirit of God. They have no illusions about who you are and what you are. They knew you back when you were old. (laughs) But they can see day by day, day by day, day by day, your heart is becoming pure. Huh? Huh? Right? Huh? Kimmy? All right. Let's pray. Hey, listen. It's so obvious, I haven't said it. If you're not even a Christian, if you have never pleaded with God to send Christ and his spirit into your heart, today is the day to do it. It would be utterly foolish for me to talk about the condition of those outside of Christ being slaves of Satan. And those who are in Christ being born again by the Spirit of God, and you sit there and think it's not for you? After all, my goodness, what does it mean for the Ninevites and the Queen of Ethiopia at the day of judgment to condemn those who don't believe unless people from Thailand and people from Germany and people from Zimbabwe rise up and follow Jesus Christ. How are you going to condemn Americans who are the children, the descendants of Jonathan Edwards, unless you believe? Right? Our Father, we pray for every soul here this morning that you will help us through the work of your Spirit to repent of our sin, to acknowledge that we are filthy, and that we are possessed slaves of Satan. And to come to the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. And our Father, we pray for those who have allowed the demons to come in and have grown slothful, that you will wake them up, 
that they will return to the first things and be sanctified by the power of your spirit and not by New Year's resolutions. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.